0: You're listening to The Slavic Connection, ACs, ACS, 2019, San Francisco.
1: All right. Welcome back to The Slavic Connection. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Dr. Shah. Dr. Shaw is a lecturer in the history department at Indiana University. His research focus is on welfare and social insurance systems, and he's geographically situated in the late Habsburg Empire and post-World War I Eastern Europe. Dr. Shah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so I was hoping we could start with you giving a brief introduction to your biography and uh-huh. what brought you into your field.
2: Okay, uh, long story short, uh,
1: this is uh, there's actually a standard story for that because
2: I'm originally from Taiwan. I finished my undergraduate education in in National Taiwan University in Taipei. So usually in the Central Eastern European history, you don't see people coming from that part of the world. Uh, So the story is, uh, my first year freshman in college in Taipei, uh, I have to write a paper for a 19th century European history class. I don't know what to write about. Uh, I just vaguely remember in high school textbook, uh, Empire was mentioned, but nobody can really explain to me what it is. So I decide, well, maybe I should write something about it. The best way to learn something new is to write about something you have no idea, so you have to do research. So I go to the books, book, bookshelves and then look at the Habsburg section. It's a really nice um, colonial period um, library built by the Japanese in the 1920s and 30s. And then Carl book. Found the C Vienna because it's beautiful. Viennese Jugendstil cover design; it's all golden. So I put it out. I opened. I understand absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, for freshmen, how can you understand something like that? But then I kind of start the thing. Uh, and then uh, I t- we were required to take either a second year um, English class for all the all these students, or you take a second foreign language. So I said, well, I don't like English as a language, so I'll do German. So that kind of started the whole thing. Okay, you get those two merge, and then... Yeah,
1: sort of. <laughs> move on from there.
2: Yeah, so yeah. And then I came to the state for graduate study and then somehow just continue and then continue here
1: too. <laughs> All right, well, that's, uh, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. Um, so your research is largely on welfare systems Mm-hmm. and the idea of, uh, of expectations between people and their state. Mm-hmm. Would you mind speaking more to that? Sure. Um, my
2: I just completed my book manuscript. Uh, it's about um, what you can call it war victim welfare, that is disabled veterans, uh, and the widows and orphans of dead soldiers. So in German, they call Kriegsopfer. And my research is mainly about those people in the Austrian half of the Habsburg monarchy. And um, what interests me the most is, what does this uh, the welfare provision for these people, what they try to achieve, and how was it designed, who designed it, who's running it, what kind of benefit people get, and what does that tell us about the relation between the state and the citizens?
1: And this is also falling into a larger Um, effort to rethink the Habsburg monarchy in recent years as not quite being this state doomed to fail. It wasn't, maybe rethinking that if it was not actually a corpse to which Germany was shackled. (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) So how do you see that Um, falling into that? In a
2: way, I'm already or my generation is already the second generation of the attempt to look at the Habsler empire as something more than just a walking dead. <laughs> and um, I use the term revisionism, although some people don't like the term, Right. Uh, but I would say we're already the second generation. So we are trained by people who already start challenging those older models of uh, narrating or even structuring how we talk about Habsler empire. And my research, you can say, I, Because I look at welfare system, I look at citizenship or what citizenship means. So in a way, to use a jargony term, what I'm doing is about social citizenship. So, you know, being a citizen, what does it really mean to you? What does it entail? Uh, what kind of entitlement or what kind of rights you have, right? Beyond those basic political rights or civic rights, what else do you have? This is not a new... Uh, Concept. This is basically from the mid twentieth century British social theorists that they talk about it. So, I'm doing this in a way treating Habsburg monarchy, um, at least the part I know, the Austrian have, as just another European modern state or modernizing state, and we don't. I want to. I don't know if this word exists. De exotify so that it's it's not something outside of mainstream it's not something really oriental. There's, a, there's actually some older kind of approach you basically treat anything east of Germany kind of orientalize that right. right so I'm looking at the Habsburg state as a modernizing state just like any other European state at the same time they were doing basically similar things. Some, some state doing it a bit earlier, some they do it a bit later but, Welfare state building, um, reconceptualizing citizenship, thinking about the relations between the government and these people. You know, what do government do? What what's being expected of them? And as a citizen, what can you what can you do in a way with with the state? I mean, not just state is somebody rule over you, but you also treat the state as a tool that you can use to get what you want. Okay. Do you see what I mean? It's yeah. How to use this stay in a way.
1: Right. So then, as it relates to welfare systems mm-hmm. during the war. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm doing it. Um, it's basically my my book manuscript stretch from mid 19th century, and then the the First World War is a big catalytic moment. I don't know if you can call it and then stretch to the early part of the first Austrian Republic, so one of the successor state to that big imperial system, imperial idea, imperial law about citizen and the, the state as an organization. So the first World war
1: is, is, is the center of this. Okay and then you in your talk you talked about it as um, nationalizing mm-hmm. politics and mm-hmm. how the central government, Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like the, the central government delegated these responsibilities to national organizations, and that furthered nationalizing processes. Yeah, that's 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 actually not my
2: evasion. That's okay. actually um, historian like Terazera and some others have been noticed have noticed those that phenomenon of um, when the Austrian state decided to expand the welfare services. Um, there's already a competing nationalist organizations, private uh, welfare agencies, uh, sponsor, supporter, founded by the nationalists. They're already underground. They already have their network. They have their know-how. They have their resources. So they stay in the end, kind of delegate um, the services to those already existing. Network providers, which were run by nationalists, especially in the case of Bohemia, German, and Czech nationalists, and they they became the the channel through which the state can deliver its welfare promise. That's part of for me. It's part of the larger nationalist po- nationalization of public administration and public politics. That the, the whole phenomenon has been taking know, happening since the mid-19th century. It's just that First World War forced the state to do certain things and give nationalist organization even more opportunity to build their legitimacy and influence.
1: So how did that play out, to bring it a little more Slavic, within the kingdom of uh-huh. the Bohemian Crownlands mm-hmm. as it was such a Germanized region with this mm-hmm. Czech national revival movement mm-hmm. from the 19th century? Um. By, you can say by 1870, 1880s, uh,
2: the Kingdom of Bohemia was already a kind of battleground, it's for as two, three decades, uh, between Czech nationalists and the German elite, which was, they were the kind of backbone of the German liberals. But then, this is Peter Justin's research from the 90s, that they became more and more nationalist because. Meanwhile, the German liberals, even the 1848ers, were kind of German nationalists. But then the competition between Czech nationalists and the Germans, uh, or the, you can say, privileged Germans now being challenged by the Czech nationalists, they became more defensive. And when the Habsburg state, especially Austrian state, because of the 1867 very liberal kind of constitutional order, uh, the state became, in a way, had to respond to the Czech challenge in terms of equal rights. And the state, for very practical power politic reasons, they had to do deals with the Czech. uh, The government needs Czech national support in the the parliament in Vienna. So the Czech nationalists, I would say they're quite successful in terms of presenting themselves as not just legitimate political forces, but also uh, Viennese government need to respond even try to build a alliance with them. They are also the master of boycotting stuff, right? You probably read Mark Twain's famous, uh, I think, 1898 uh, article in the Hoppers. Uh, he wrote about this famous, um, uh, what's the name of that, um, 1897, uh, the famous uh, botany language uh, ordinance that Basically, making concessions to the Czech national saying that in the Kingdom of Bohemia, um, if you're a state official, central state official, you you have be have to be able to use both German and Czech as bureaucratic internal language, not just external, because external already happened that if you're going to be in contact with regular citizens and if they speak Czech you were supposed to be able to speak some Czech. Right. Then. But now the botany thing is a concession to the Czech nationalists. You have to be able to um, speak Czech within the bureaucracy. That angers the German nationalists, and you basically have riots across the Austrian of half, half the monarchy, especially the German cities. People went on street doing riot, because they, how can you do this to us Germans?
1: Within the Czech lands or across? Across.
2: A... So it's a it's a moment for German nationalists becoming becoming now the boycotting people instead Ooh, of the Czech okay. nationalists.
1: Now it's the Germans. Interesting. Czechs do love to boycott. Um,
2: They're very good at it. But now <laughs> German nationalists take it to uh, up a notch. And so, so the, some people long ago argue that. Um, the effective end of Austrian parliamentary politics was the Badeni crisis, 1897. And then basically the parliamentary politics didn't really work. Uh, you have to do a lot of local deals with bureaucracy and different parties. You know, everybody sitting in a smoke-filled back room, and then let's do a nice deal. Right. Everybody can come out claiming, I bring home the pork to your, to your constituents.
1: But nobody really, quote unquote, made the compromise with your nationalist foe. Huh. And then once the war starts this continues this this dynamic push and pull between German and Czech nationalists continues to play out within the welfare system. That's
2: the thing I talk about in the conference I will argue that we don't know. Okay. Or at least we don't know that well. If you read Tara Zara's book uh, Kidnapped Souls she shows you yes the 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 the, the conflict between the German nationalists or the, shouldn't say conflict, the competition between German nationalists and Czech nationalists in terms of youth welfare, they the, the nat- nationalizing or the nationalist um, dynamic play out and then be magnified during the First World War. But in other places, we don't really know, right? The, uh, the, the, the example I use in my paper about the Reichenberg or the Liberates, that's a part Ger- that's the part of Bohem- Northern Bohemia where most people were German speakers. Well, almost exclusively German speakers. And the, th- the case I thought was, yes, it, sound- it looks like the German nationalist organization took over the local um, reserve hospital that take care of uh, severely wounded soldiers. But does that mean that um, the war victim welfare in that area were all or gradually taking over by the nationalist organizations, we don't really know. We, we need to do more research. Or maybe Czech historians today already did some research, it's just that we don't know.
1: We didn't get to read those research. Right. So it should try to start reading more Czech research.
2: In a way, yeah. I think the, the issue is um, after 1990s, um, Czech historian and also us, have much better, well, most part of Eastern Europe, we have better access to resource to research um, primary sources, and we have access to to their research and the way they write also becoming more similar to the way we write, although still kind of different. Uh, the kind of academic culture is different, but then I, I still think that um, because I'm to some extent I'm also a historian of First World War. Right, it's just I'm not talking about battlefield. I'm talking about what happened on other other area during yeah, the war the social offensive on the home front yeah and then it's um the, the one of the good thing about centenary of the first world war is that uh european history especially from eastern europe they get a lot of funding and they they not only produce good work they also start writing in english sometimes i think it's because they want people to know what they've been doing but also i think sometimes it's because european funding mechanism forcing them to use English more so that it could be disseminated, exchanged, whatever.
1: Yeah. I have noticed a rising interest in World War I recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the Czech Republic in 2014 mm-hmm. and I saw people yeah. doing reenactment and mm-hmm. uh, Peter Jackson just mm-hmm. made that documentary mm-hmm. that's getting yeah. a second release oh, this okay. coming December, yeah, they just yeah. announced. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the growing interest, both public but also academic.
2: Academic interest growing, it's basically a couple of years before the centenary, you know, 2012, 2013. When I finished my dissertation, you start seeing things coming out. Um, and then coming out in the language people can read. You don't have right. to know five or six language to read your local colleagues' work. So th- that's a good thing for people doing Eastern European history here in the
1: States. Yeah, do you see it as a maybe a a celebrating the centenary movement that might end or do you see Habsburg studies continuing to advance?
2: It's there. <laughs> right. So I don't see it. well, let's put it that way. Um honestly, um you can see the shrinking of opportunities for people who work on the Habsburg Empire in terms of new historians. There are not many jobs for us, but it's the same for everybody. Right. Uh, but in terms of research, actually, there are a lot of new stuff, interesting things. People asking new questions, people using new sources, um, both from here in the States, but also in Eastern Europe. Um, so the the field is actually much more, I would say, dynamic and much more exciting, especially now that uh, the revisionist ideas has become orthodox. Well, to some extent, you still you still see a lot of pushback. You probably know that the, the panel before my panel, one of the very senior, famous historians, basically said, "I don't. I'm not interested in those." national indifference, national whatever, you know, know—they're nations, they're nation states, you know, how early the origin, nah, that's not an issue. So that's a reality, you have to deal with it. But for us revisionists, we have to think about how people build those ideas and make it into normal. Why we take nation state for granted, right? right. Why do we think it's a natural order of, of political life? And maybe the only legitimate form Of political
1: life right Right. it does have very broad implications and potential connections to other fields especially in the modern age when nation-states are losing a lot of their no
2: they're not losing a lot of power let me let me (laughs) rephrase that
1: when there are new avenues of power being opened that are outside of their traditional spheres
2: yeah but you can see that they are there so that's that's actually one thing I was you know because Hubsford, doing history of the Empire, doing the, the, um, because the East, Eastern European more generally, um, this new idea about how we see um, nation state or nationalism or national identity, it opens a lot of doors, and it's a, one of the important thing, one of the important insights for the revisionists in the historiography, and I don't think that movement will somehow grind it to a halt because it opens so many possibilities for us to re- revisit old topic, to open new topic, and now, like I say, my presentation, to rewrite the overall narrative of Hub's, late Habsburg right empire and Eastern Europe
1: in general. Right. And so this project is tentatively titled "Victims State? Yeah, but it's a tentative title. Tentative title? Well, what's behind the tentative title?
2: It's a good question. Um, I'm. I see my book manuscript. Um, it's a story of citizenship. It's a story of war victims, of course, but it's just more generally. It's a story of citizenship. What does it mean to be a citizen, and what does the state has to do to to deal with this? Because they're citizens. They're not just your subjects. They're they people with rights, and people have a say in public life, and that interaction between state and citizen, and how citizens seize the opportunity of different institutions or different laws, or they organize themselves and assert themselves in public life. So necessarily political life, but public life more in general. And I see that as interesting part. But for me, because my subject is mostly war victims, especially disabled veterans, they are very active uh, immediately after the war, they became very assertive. so the first Austrian republic welfare state, I will argue, um, at least in terms of war victim welfare, is very much shaped by those clients of the welfare system. They became i call it a the partnership of the weak, the physically weak people politically actually important, so the a weak kind of successor state looking for its own survival source of survival and legitimacy kind of work with those clients to build this welfare state so i call it a victim state but it could change because i'm not a very literary guy so (laughs) if somebody suggests something better i probably will say yes
1: well I, i like the title i think the the way the comma is placed in it as the Mm -hmm. plural possessive victims (laughs) state i think that it's it's nice yeah but uh, i'm not claiming that they're taking over (laughs) this right right well i'm glad you're able to explain it and i look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. do you have a time frame uh, i don't know
2: i'm i'm still talking to the presses okay and then i think the book is maybe
1: too long so it needs some work okay well i look forward to reading thank uh, you thank you for coming on the show thank you for having me
0: ACs
1: 2019, San Francisco. We are here at ACs 2019 with Jill, who is a visiting instructor in the English department at the University of South Florida. Her work focuses on folklore in Russia and East Europe, and she's recently done some work on... Folklore being used for non by non-Western audiences and in non-Western settings. So, Joe, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me today.
1: Yeah, so I'd like to start asking you about the paper you're here to present, a little bit more about what you're doing.
0: I gave a paper on uh, the tradition of Slavic folklore and how it's been appropriated lately by a lot of writers in the young adult genre. So there are some famous writers right now in the US like Lee Bardoga, Naomi Novik, Catherine Valente, and Emily Duncan, who are using Slavic folklore as the backbone of their series. And I'm really interested in how either they make use of Russia and talk about Russia or include Russia, or they create a world that's based on Russia and use a lot of the folkloric traditions in those works
1: interesting so why do you think this has taken root in the young adult genre recently
0: it's a really good question and one that i'm still kind of figuring out in my research process i'm pretty early on in this phase what are
1: your gut instincts
0: it's kind of this place that a lot of people are curious about we're hearing a ton about russia in the news lately obviously and i think between you know there's that romanticism of the romanovs and anastasia and i think that kind of gets transferred over two people being curious about it and wanting to know more about the culture and all of these things that we really don't learn about, at least in the American school system
1: think that might be why a lot of these authors typically do not have Russian backgrounds or Slavic backgrounds more generally?
0: Yeah I think that's a big reason um, and I think there's so much in Russian history and so much in Russian folklore that is so interesting that it serves as a really good foundation for these stories.
1: Why now? Why is now when this is starting? You'd mentioned in the panel and i started sorry to bring this up but no. we hadn't recorded that so I'd like to bring <laughs> it up. You'd mentioned that the intersection of the 90s is an important time for this with the internet. Um, the Eastern Bloc opening up to the West, and Harry Potter, all kind of creating this storm.
0: Yeah, I think the 90s were a perfect storm for the start of this. Like you said, Harry Potter kind of got started in the 90s, and that brought young adult literature kind of to the world stage as the next big thing. Then we had the fall of the Soviet Union, where Russia becomes more accessible and isn't necessarily the enemy. So you can write about it as they're no longer the bad guys, right? They can be kind of the heroes of the story, which a lot of these stories do place Russians or these young Russian women as the heroines of the stories. I think that makes it really interesting.
1: And you'd mentioned heroines, and this is something else you had talked about, that a lot of these are books written by women, and they typically feature female protagonists. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: No, I think that's so interesting. you know, There's always that love triangle in these stories, which I think books like Hunger Games and Twilights so that were talking about young adult literature kind of made the requirement that if you're going to write a young adult novel there has to be some kind of love triangle in it. Um, but I really love that these women, even on their own, are really strong characters. It's their mission to save the country and I like that there is a bit of female empowerment in these stories for a younger audience.
1: So, maybe some examples of these stories, because I'm not personally familiar with any, so you say that they're relatively successful, maybe two or three of the biggest ones.
0: I think the biggest one right now is the Grisha series, that's by Leigh Bardoga. Um, She just has another book out right now that's called, I think it's The Ninth House. Um, It's not Russian, but she's getting a lot of press for that one. it's her first adult novel. Um, She's also getting a lot of press because Netflix just bought the Grisha series. And so it's going to be a television show. And hers is, I think it's three original books in the series, and then one kind of tag-along book where there actually is a male protagonist in that one. One of the male characters was so popular in the first series that he's now getting his own story. Um, And that takes place in a world called Ravka, and there's so many little Russian references in it. I think in one part they're chasing after a firebird, Um, a lot of the endings have a We would recognize them as Russian endings, one of the characters' nickname is Sobachik, and so there's all these little nods to Russia without it being Russia itself.
1: Interesting. And do you think the audiences pick up on this, being Russia?
0: A lot of them do, and that's the part that I find really interesting because these books also have a huge online presence. And that's one of the things I talked about was that young adult literature has this gigantic digital footprint. If you go to Goodreads, or if you go to a lot of fan sites on Tumblr, people are really devoted to these books. There's artwork, there's fan fiction, and even on her website, there's like a comment section where people will ask about, well, what does Sobachka mean? and someone will type in, oh, it means this. Um, so people are recognizing it as other and then seeking places online to kind of get answers to their to their questions about it.
1: Interesting. So this is information, background information, provided by the community and not the authors themselves.
0: That I find really interesting about it sometimes, and Lee Bardoga is actually pretty good about giving context to her stories. She has a bunch of citations on her website. I think she does like... Natasha's dance is one of her references that she she puts on her website that I got a lot of information about Russian culture from this book Um, but there is this big huge fan section on her site where people are talking about the different Russian influences on the book
1: and I think that's really cool but are there times when it doesn't get picked up on, maybe?
0: I'm sure. I think there are probably tons of readers who assume all of it is made up, and when they see these words that they don't know, maybe their eyes glance over it a little bit and just say, oh, well, that's a Ravkin word, and it doesn't make the connection to, it's a Russian word.
1: Huh. Well, it kind of fantasizes Russia in a way, which is interesting.
0: It's a, definitely a very romantic
1: version of Russia. And then I guess that's interesting especially because typical fantasy in the West is so inspired by these normal, like these Tolkien-esque ideas. Do you think that having this new view on folk tradition in fantasy vitalizes it, makes it more interesting to people?
0: I'm hoping it's gonna make people more curious. One of the things that I'm really excited about is when I first started teaching Russian as a grad student, I had a bunch of students that took Russian 101 or a Russian literature course because they had seen the animated Anastasia. And they loved it and they just wanted to know a little bit more about Russia. And that was really exciting for me. I'm always curious to know how people get into Russian if they don't have a Russian background. And so now that Netflix has spent a, Good bit of money on buying the rights to this book, and they're going to make it a series with, I'm sure, gorgeous teenage actors. That there's going to be this whole new generation of people out there, hopefully students out there, who maybe want to learn a little bit more about Russian.
1: Is there a rumor in St. Petersburg? <laughs> yeah, I think there might
0: be. <laughs> That's such a good reference.
1: So I guess another thing that I was interested in that had been touched on in the panel, but I thought it was pertinent, um, is the idea that since these are largely non-Russian or non-Slavic authors, can this be construed as cultural appropriation or could it be considered some degree of I
0: think that's such a hard question. That's the one that I'm really struggling with. I've given another version of this paper focusing on imagined geographies, and that audience very strongly felt that it was cultural appropriation, that the places where they get Russian culture wrong tends to be crucial elements of it, especially in the full characters, and so by not doing their due diligence in learning more about the culture, it becomes appropriation.
1: see it possibly as an attempt to bring Russian culture into mainstream consciousness which makes it feel less
0: my hope is but I do think I think that getting some of the details wrong or not um, little things so there there's that one book that I mentioned today that's coming out this week or just came out on Tuesday it's called blood air and the female protagonist the main character her last name is Russian but it doesn't have the a on the end And I've seen a lot of criticism of that, of that's a basic thing to know about Russian names, that female patronymics and female last names get an A. And so by not researching those things, by not looking into those things, that's where I think it kind of leans towards appropriation and not appreciation.
1: But that sounds like it's something to keep thinking about. I really want to keep researching. Yeah, so is there anything else that you're currently working on? you'd like to talk about? That's my
0: main project right now for the moment. I am working on my first book, which I'm really excited about, and it's, thank you, Um, I have a contract for it, and I'm looking at Paths of Redemption in Russian literature um, with a Moskva Petushki by Benidik Yurefiev. I'm
1: not familiar with
0: it. Oh, you should definitely read it. It's um, one of those really wild postmodern novels. It's not too long, and it's a... A man with the same name as the author who has to get from Moscow to the town of Petushki. He's made 12 attempts to get there and um, has failed each time.
1: Is this another young adult novel? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no.
0: Um, no, it's not. But it definitely involves a lot of vodka and some really wild characters.
1: That's well, why I have to look forward to it. Yes, you should read it. It's amazing. So, all right. I think... Uh, Did you get enough? I think we're good. The Slavic Connection is produced by the
0: Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so how many people are you are you interviewing this trip? We have one more. Wow. Uh huh.
1: Still a lot. Yeah. Wow. They should give you credit for this. We got we got some
2: candy. (laughs) I can buy you candy (laughs) if you'd like any. We have some Russian candy.
1: It's okay. I I, I could take it off if I wanted to, but now it's stuck. Um, So go ahead. Yeah. All right. Are we all set?